June the 18th, 2017, lecture discussion number 287 on the book of Romans for the sake of the special Father's Day visitors. And this is a special Father's Day lecture today. You can be guaranteed of that. There were 286 lectures that you missed that led on up to this one. So I will do my best to somehow keep the bus moving and yet at the same time allow you to jump on board. So we'll see how I do. Uh, no promises. We left off last Sunday with my assertion, which was more like a proposal, I suppose, that Satan, filled with conceit because the Bible says that he is absolutely, totally controlled by his pride, his conceit, his ego. He is certain of his intellectual supremacy. Ask why he is so certain. He believed he could achieve, in my proposition, a stalemate, a draw, for a time, if you wish, with God. Does that make sense? Let me repeat it. I am proposing that Satan was so enamored with his own intellect, an intellect that we can't imagine. We have no idea the level of genius that this being is. We've never seen anything like him. We probably never will. He believed that he could achieve a stalemate with God. But he only believed it, that he believed he could do it for a time. By this I submitted that Satan fully understood that Jesus Christ, God in the flesh, God Almighty, Jesus Christ, the creator of all things, and the sustaining force of all things. Let me back up a second. In order to be the sustaining force and the creator, in order for that to be true, and it is true, God must be omniscient. So Satan's intellect is attempting to reach some kind of draw, to use a humanistic term, some kind of impasse with omniscience. Consider that for a second. How much ego does it take to think that you can reach some kind of stall against an omniscient, creating, sustaining being. The sustaining force of all things. The creation. The creator of all things. If God is omniscient, and God is omniscient, but grant me the hypothetical, then he has to be omnipresent in order to be omniscient. In other words, omniscience requires that he be everywhere simultaneously. If he is everywhere simultaneously, and he knows everything simultaneously with being everywhere simultaneously, then he has to be omnipotent to accomplish that. The amount of power necessary is, is infinite. Omniscience is, infin is uh, infinity. Omnipresence is infinity. Some will say, well, the, the creation is not infinite. Well, what else is there that we don't know? In other words, if the creation... I say this all the time. If this is God's hand... And the artwork is fantastic. And this is creation. There is the universe. And that is probably way too big of a dot, so let me get rid of that. Here is the created matter. There it is. You can all see it. Of course you can't. But if that's his hand, call it a ratio, and the ratio isn't accurate because the hand is infinite, right? What else is on the either side of the finite universe? All sides of the finite universe. You would say nothing. But now you have to define nothing. Is nothing nothing? Or is there two, two kinds of nothing? As you know, there are two kinds of nothing. 
We'll get to that at some other time. We don't have time for that today. But in order to be omniscient, he must be omnipresent, he must be omnipotent, he must be omnibenevolent, which means he must have pure goodness and as well as be the creator of time, and therefore he is outside of time. Time is subordinate to God. All of what I just said is necessary to be the creator and sustainer of all things. And Satan knows that. Satan would quickly understand, possessing as he does, tremendous, if not unparalleled, sagacity. There is no being that is comparable to him intellectually, and he knows that. But he also knows that in comparison to God's omniscience, he doesn't register on the scale. Does that make sense? Hope it does. Satan knows this. However, he is so conceited, I propose, I believe, he reaches a place where his pride overcomes him. He would disagree. He would say it was just a logical extension of his capabilities. He comes to a place where he believes that he can impact omniscience for a time. Again, Satan understands That he, Satan, is locked inside of time. You are locked inside of time. Everything you see in the physical reality is inside of time. Even in the spiritual reality, they are subject to time. I'll prove that as we go along. So, Satan knows that he is locked inside of time, as is all created reality. All reality locked inside of time. Disregard Hollywood. Everything you think is possible about time travel is not. God is not inside of time. So by what means could Satan employ, could Satan consider, that would lead this unequaled mind of his to conclude that God, omniscient, omnipresent, omnipotent, omnibenevolent, the creator, and outside of time, How could he impact him? How could he do anything that affects God? Phrase it another way, perhaps more so lucid, but don't count on it. Did Satan reach a point where he thought it's possible to affect omnipotence? I don't think he did. I think that he he looked at God's omnibenevolence, as you know. God is always good. He's pure. He's holy. He's perfect in his thoughts. If you ever read the Bible and you come to a conclusion that is in conflict with that, read it again. If you ever come to a place and say, God killed this person and it isn't fair, read it again. The answer is, is that person is evil. God will stop evil. He ends evil. He ends sin whenever it is absolutely the last possible thing to do. So always understand this omnibenevolence. And let me point this out to you. You know, as you read Scripture, that Christ weeps. This is God weeping. Jesus Christ is God himself, the Lord God Almighty, the Ancient of Days, the I Am. He weeps. God weeps. He grieves. He groans. He laughs. Christ is joyful. 
That is God demonstrating his joy. And as quickly as Satan determined that he was inside a time, I believe he saw the absolute goodness of God. So immediately, the first two things that Satan's intellect led him to is, one, I am inside of time. Two, God is pure, perfect goodness. And one aspect of absolute goodness is unmistakable to all sentient beings. All of us have it. We, we have an aspect of his absolute goodness in us at all times, and we don't recognize it, but we should. That being, of course, that we have consciousness. All of us are conscious. That is, all sentient beings are conscious. That includes animals. Everything that has consciousness. Consciousness comes from consciousness. We can't get consciousness without consciousness, and the, and you cannot get consciousness without absolute goodness. Now, that is a logical progression. I don't have time to deal with it today, but just start thinking about it and wrestling with it, and you will come to that conclusion. I guarantee it because it's the only conclusion available. We also have freedom. We have a will, a free will. Again, free will is a result of goodness. So Satan would know immediately that he was sentient, that he had self-awareness, that he had consciousness, and that was because God has to be perfect good in order for that to be true. And Satan would also understand that he had free will. He could make free will decisions, even decisions that were contrary to the goodness of God. And he recognized that very quickly. Satan knew he was conscious, and he knew why. Back to Descartes. I think, therefore I am. Basic logic dictates that God is omnibenevolent. God is love, he is merciful, he is long-suffering, he is just, he is pure, holy, good, and that's proved by our self-awareness, our consciousness, and our free will. Now, for those of you who have come to the previous, let me count again, 286 lectures, you know all of this, or you pretend to know it for the sake of the visitors. Either one will work. Yes, it's true, visitors. And for you on the vast Internet audience, I have visitors today, and I'm trying to drive them away. I know. But for you that are new here, Coca-Cola Company pays me to advertise their products. None of that is true. But you shouldn't immediately destroy my premise like that. It's so disrespectful. Anyway, <laughs> I'm hoping that someday they will contribute. I am working hard at this. I am a, a loyal participant in their economic construct. But the vast Internet audience will be pleased to know that we have visitors. They think that that is unlikely out there. <laughs> For good reason. <coughs> anyway, where was I being the trained professional? Those of you who have made the previous 286 lectures and those that have predate that for the last 25 years, um, you recognize that where we are is Genesis 15. This is the smoking furnace and the burning lamp. This is Matthew 26. Why did Christ uh, hold up the cup? This is Matthew 4, Christ and Satan uh, in the wilderness. You already know where this discussion leads. Omnipotence cannot be opposed to use a humanistic perspective. You can't oppose omnipotence. It's impossible on its face. 
but let's go ahead and use a humanistic aspect of perspective and say that we're going to say it can be opposed. The only thing that can oppose omnipotence is something that has equality with omnipotence, and that would be omnipotence or omnipresence or omnibenevolence or omniscience. That is Genesis 15. The smoking furnace is the omnipotence of justice, and the burning lamp is the omnipotence of love and mercy, making agreement that humans can understand, a solution to sin. That is where we are. Just I'm doing it a little bit different this time because I I hope to add some things that I have left out previously. On purpose, by the way. Oh, I know. What is cool is I have been getting letters from people that say that they appreciate my crusade against saying those three words because it is apparently pretty common amongst the uh, the supposed professional speakers out there. I have eliminated it almost completely, haven't I? No, I haven't. (laughs) Okay. I have never believed that Satan thought that God could be overcome. Never. I don't believe he thought that God could be defeated. I think Satan is way too smart for that. I don't think he ever considered that God could be killed or anything that even remotely relates to that in any of all of those. It never made any sense to me. How stupid do you have to be to think that God could be killed? It just isn't going to be happening. Satan is not stupid. Mankind, on the other hand... As Bill the Fast would like to say, we have mucus in the front and dingleberries in the back. Mankind is is so dumb. How dumb is he? I help myself with my own jokes. Mankind is so dumb, he will worship a stick, a rock, a fish, a cow. Pick something. For that matter, pick anything. Mankind will worship it, or has worshipped it, or is it, or is currently worshiping it, or is planning to worship it. That is the asininity of humanity, and it is unrivaled. So Satan did not believe it, but he figured out quickly that man would believe it. And he also figured out quickly that the angelic realm would believe it. How fast did he think through this? Okay, let's let's back the bus up a bit. I'll make some room for some questions that I was unable to include last Sunday. Notice that I am attempting to formulate a hypothesis that admit, omits no attributes of Satan. In other words, I'm about to put on the board a list of everything the Bible says about Satan. Almost, not quite. And then I'm going to say to you that you have to incorporate, you have to connect all of those characteristics to the lie or the motive or the logic of Satan. And so, therefore, it would be prudent to let you in on the list. I have read it to you over the weeks, but we'll, we'll make it a little bit more obvious today. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15. And I'll do this as quickly as I can. He is called the Shining One, Lucifer, Right? Lucifer as a light reference, the son of the morning. So this is an, these are characteristics, aspects, things that are said about Satan that I believe tell you, lead you to what his motivation is, what his logic is, what his plan is, what his first lie was, why he has done what he has done. 
They are not independent of one another. They are, in fact, dependent on one another. He said in his heart, he's, this, these are the things that Satan said in his heart. So, he didn't say them aloud. He thought them. These are his thoughts. I will ascend. I will ascend into heaven. He thought. I will exalt. They're called the five I wills of Satan, as you know. I will exalt my throne. He intends to have a throne. And he's going to exalt his throne. Number three, I will sit. Also sit, he says. I will also sit. Sit. As right now, he stands by the throne. At the time he thought this, he was standing. Now he intends to bring his own throne into the throne room and sit on it. What does that make him? What is he thinking? Why is he thinking this? I will sit on the mountain. I will ascend above the clouds. What is he talking about, clouds? Oh, I hear voices. And no, don't think what you're thinking. I'm hearing voices come through the, through, through the area. Yes, uh, could you go out there and, and intimidate those people like you usually do? And tell them to go downstairs under threat of some kind of legal action? Empty threat, nonetheless. I will be like God. He won't, he's not going to be God. He does not think he can be God. He's not stupid. But he's going to have a semblance, uh, something that is, if you wish to think of it this way, something that portrays God. He's going to reach something of that level. Now from Ezekiel 28. 12 through 15. This is a much bigger list, so we'll start at D. Okay, good. It's working out for me. He is called by God the seal of perfection. This is what Christ calls Satan, the seal of the of perfection. He he is called full of wisdom. The term is such that it is absolutely totally full of wisdom. If, the, if, if it were, were us, we are, he does not call us full of wisdom. We have, he is, Satan is called perfect in beauty. He's in Eden. Satan is in Eden. In fact, he is the king of Eden. Every precious stone covers him. So he is, he is encapsulated in present stones. He has this workmanship of his timbrels. Pipes. There's an implication of 
worship of, of musicality here. He is the anointed cherub. So he is the highest of all the cherubim, which makes him the highest of every angelic being that has been created. He was perfect in his ways. Oh, I'm sorry. He, he's on the holy mountain. So he's on the holy mountain. Go back here. I will sit on the mountain. He is on the mountain here, but he wants to sit and he wants to bring his own throne. So he starts out on the mountain. He's this incredible being. He walked back and forth. In other words, he had authority to go anywhere he wanted on the mountain. Amazingly powerful, high-ranking, angelic being. And he was perfect in his ways. So, this is a a description of Satan. Let's just run him back. Seal is... He has the seal of perfection. What does that mean? He has been identified as perfect. He's full of wisdom. He's perfect in beauty. Notice perfect keeps showing up. He's in Eden. He's the king of Eden. He's covered in precious stones. He's got this tremendous capability, uh, both in, his, uh, in speaking and in, I would assume, uh, music as well. He's the highest ranking cherub of all. He is on the mountain. He's walked. He's got total freedom up there. And he is perfect in his ways. That's Satan. Okay? And the last one in this particular group is that he was created. God makes sure when he talks about Satan, he was created. Who put the seal of perfection on him? Yeah, obviously that is God's seal, right? And then over here, we're at, oh, sin was found in Satan. Uh, Then he became filled with hate and violence. Uh, That's redundancy. By the abundance of his traffic, what that means is that he went from angel to angel, one at a time, and convinced them of something. By the abundance of his traffic, his heart was lifted up. So here comes pride, arrogance, ego, conceit. So, as he went from angel to angel, he became more and more convinced of something. And it says, because of his beauty, he has this astonishing beauty. His wisdom corrupted for the sake of his splendor. So, his beauty corrupted his wisdom. So, now we know that his beauty has something to do with his corruption. His beauty has something to do with his ability uh, 
to convince people the abundance of his traffic. Let me go back to the D through N here. All of these things of Satan. How long was he in this condition? When did he become sinful? How long did he, how long was he in existence? How long did it take to go traffic one by one to every angelic being that he could contact with? How long did that take? When did he become sinful? How long was he in an unsinful position? So there's, there's the list, and I'm saying to you, let me repeat this, that that list has to fit what you decide Satan's lie was, what you decide what his motive is, what you decide what his logic progression is, or his anatomy, or his steps. And that's going to suffice by now. But also, don't forget Genesis 3. i got to put that up there for you. Genesis 3 tells us more things, doesn't it? It says that he will, he is... Uh, eating dust forever, that he is cursed above cattle and beasts. And we don't have time for that, but remember that the, the Genesis 3 is on the list. That's the characteristics of Satan that predate Genesis 3. That would be a better way to put it. Obviously, any conclusion reached will likewise need to be compliant with those properties, in my view, as well as the properties or the facets of God as well how God is. So when you begin to discuss what was going on with Satan in the original fall of the angelic beings, Satan's uh, beginnings as a a being of evil, then I'm telling you, in my opinion, there's the caveat, that you have to understand God's omniscience, omnipotence, omnipresence, omnibenevolence, the fact that he's the creator and outside of time, and then these aspects of Satan. Yes, ma'am. The question for the vast Internet audience is, was Satan jealous? I don't think he was. Well, humans at this point, where do humans fit? Yes. Is this before humans or after humans? Yeah, we can make a guess. We can make a recent guess. The question for the vast Internet audience is, can we definitively know the timeline of Satan's fall and the fall of humanity. Let me ask it this way. I do it many times. Who fell first, Satan or Adam? I think it's obvious that it's Satan because Satan tries to make Adam fall, right? So now we're talking about when did Satan fall? How much time? Okay. With that out of the way, we can now move on with some other relevant observations, perhaps. And hopefully you remember me dealing with uh, Felicia's question here in the past, which is raising the angelic creative order. That's essentially what she's asking. What is the angelic created order? Was Satan created first among all the angels? He's the king of Eden. He has all of this. Was he, was he created first? If the text indicates that to you, that Satan was the first, let me ask you this. Was Adam created first? Yeah. Okay. He's king of Eden. Organic Eden. Satan's the king of mineral Eden. Yes, ma'am. Go ahead. Absolutely right. Wha- 
was Adam positioned over was Adam positioned over every human being? Was Adam the federal head of humanity? Well, for the vast internet audience, Jana has decided that Satan was created first. <laughs> You'll get mail. Don't worry about it. This is reasons why we never film the audience here. So. One, that the authorities are not uh, informed. And two, uh, we keep them from being receiving the abuse that I get. Though it would be fun for you. Maybe not. Maybe it wouldn't be. <coughs> okay. Just think about, was Satan created first? I'm glad you're thinking about that. If, uh, again, what is the angelic creative order? If Satan was created first of all the angels, why? Because he was the most powerful? Because he has these characteristics? Because he was the wisest? He had the most capability? And then how long was the interval between Satan's creation and the rest of the angels? Did Satan get a couple of days on the job before his employees showed up? Did he get familiarized with the facility? You know, over here, there's the maintenance room. Who came next? Was it the other cherubim? Was it the seraphim? When did Michael show up? When you read Jude, you see this tremendous deference from Michael with regard to Satan. Tremendous deference. He will not say anything against Satan. won't do it. So you recognize something is going on here. How long did Satan stay in this condition? D through N. How long? What was the succession? Who came next and when? Did the angelic creation demonstrate the pattern of the organic creation? In other words, did, is there a similarity between the creation of the seven days from Genesis 1 and the creation of the angelic host? Well, let's... Take a run at that really fast. Let's go to Job 38, 1 through 7. And we'll just read it today, but you need to know it's here when you're in this discussion. Then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this who darkens counsel by the words without knowledge? Now prepare yourself like a man. I will question you and you shall answer me. Job is questioning God. Is that a good idea? No. So here we have God's response. Where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? What's inside the foundations of the earth? Time. Tell me if you have understanding. Well, that's a rhetorical term, which means Job doesn't have it. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. That might qualify as sarcasm. Who stretched the line upon it? Isn't that fascinating? To what were its foundations fastened? And who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? So God is telling Job that all the sons of God shouted for joy when God did something with the earth. So they saw something. 
So there's your Job 38, 1 through 7. All the sons of God shouted for joy. So we're going to have to deal with that. When did that happen? We'll need to solve it. For today, just know that it's there while you compile, construct your timeline. I want you to make your timeline. I'm not going to give you my timeline until you have yours. It doesn't do you any good for me to just give you my timeline. It never helps you. You have to put your own timeline together. When did the sons of God, which are the angels, they're always angels. This is why you know they're angels in Genesis 6. When did the sons of God shout for joy? Why did they shout for joy? There's a reason they shouted for joy. They saw something very joyful. What did they see? Again, just understand, construct your timeline. Job 38.7 requires a correct and defensible placement in your timeline. Anyway, eventually we can all agree that at some point, After the sons of God are created, they will be in two conditions. At some point after they're created, they end up in two conditions. One is a fallen state. The other is an unfallen state. So I have two groups of sons of God. I have the sons of God that are fallen, and I have the sons of God that are unfallen. Would you all agree? Say yes. Don't say yes here. Ever. Job 38.7. Did all the sons of God shout for joy? Are the fallen shout for joy? Are the unfallen shout for joy? Who shouted for joy in Job 38.7? Was it all the sons of God or one-third, two-thirds? Clearly, the fallen sons of God did not rejoice at the creation of Adam. If the fallen sons of God have fallen before Adam is created, have you decided that the fallen sons of God have fallen before the creation of Adam, yes or no? Never answer a question here. Or raise your hand, but decide on your own. And then elbow your sister next to you and tell her your answer is better than her answer. That's how we do it. Yes, sir. He is the morning star. Well, see, that's right here. I call him the shining one because I didn't want to call him the morning star. Because that's still, there's a little dispute about that. Which what? Are you in are you in Ezekiel 28? Job. Yes, well, we will have to determine this, won't we? But yes, good. Off you go. Yes, that's why I called him the shining star, or the shining one. You notice I did not call him the morning star. But I will make that case next week as best we can. But good for you, getting ahead of me again. Well, that's exactly right. What are we talking about here? We're in lots of issues. I can't tell the vast Internet audience what we're doing now because we're descending into chaos. But, but it's wonderful. It's exactly what I want you to do is start battling your way through this. I ask, let me ask again. Did the angels that selected Satan's alternative concept, the fallen angels, did they rejoice at the creation of Adam? That's what I'm asking. Did they fall before Adam? If you have them falling before Adam, do you have them rejoicing at the creation of Adam? What I'm trying to do is force you into into your own generation. I want you to generate a succession of events, one that is consistent with Isaiah 14, 
Ezekiel 28, Job 38, and Genesis 1 through 3. And it's not as simple as some of us would have have you to believe. It is a lot more complicated than that, and people punt here a lot. And I'm going to try to get you to figure it out and come up with something that you believe uh, is valid. There is considerable dispute among the learned theologians, among the academics. It's not a surprise. <laughs> the, 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 there's an uprising in the second row for those of you on the... <laughs> Oh, that's an excellent question. Why doesn't God reveal his thoughts to his creation in a overt, not overt, in a plain way? I get this, I get this all the time. And it's a wonderful question. Don't think that it isn't. But people want it just, why doesn't he just give it to me? Why do I have to dig it all out and find it for myself? Uh, not humans. Yes, well, you're putting them in a different classification then than you. Why would they be? They're curious beings, aren't they? Were they uh, last week? Raise your hand if you missed last week. Don't raise your hand. But if you have, then I ask this question. I, I believe: Did God create them fully intellectually um, mature, or did He create them with a sense of wonderment? Oh, did you? Good for you. <laughs> In other words, how long before they reached their intellectual maturity? Was it instant? Or was, did he give them the opportunity for awe and wonderment, discovery, learning process? Did the angels have a learning curve, if you will, or a learning interval before they reached maturity? We had one. I liked mine a lot. Every puppy that I have owned has one, and I like to watch those, too. They're pretty cool. Yes. It's going to continue, isn't it? And so God clearly values that learning process. Okay. We're now in a lot of trouble. Got to hurry. But it's fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. <laughs> Especially that part. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Your family is fighting amongst themselves. No, no surprise from the parents. <laughs> okay, let's get going here. Satan. Okay, well, let me back up a second. As there's the academics. They they are they argue. There's tremendous dispute and debate. They won't tell you that there is. They don't want you to know this. They're afraid that it'll affect you in a negative way. I've had them in this congregation. I've had them come to this class many years ago now and tell people here you can't handle this. This is not for you. You just go give money to the church and keep your mouth shut, and we'll take care of these problems over here. That's what they say, and it is not not something that I appreciate. I don't believe it's correct. I think that you perfectly can handle these kinds of discussions, and that you should. But they do not. They, they look at the uh, uh, average congregate as someone who has no capacity to deal with difficult topics which I think has hurt the church tremendously, that thinking. It is, it is an ancient one. They wouldn't even let the congregants or the people in the church have a Bible for centuries and centuries and centuries. And I think it was very damaging. And they'll pay a price for that. So there, there's yet to be an exactly determined coordinate in our now incomplete 
graph of time. In other words, I have given you a graph of time, and I've given you a list of coordinates, kind of, and you have to go place them. Which one happened here? When did Satan get created? When did Satan fall? When did the angels get created? When did the angels fall? How long did it take him to go to every angel? The abundance of your traffic. What was his lie? When was Satan? Or when was Adam created? Uh, when did Adam and Eve fall? What's going on? And I think, as you know, that the lie to Eve has great symmetry to the lie to the angelic host. So, Satan, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty, rises up in pride and embarks on a murderous frenzy. Definition of murderous has to be established. He is the father of murder. Again, have to define murder. Who does he murder first? Angels. What's it mean to murder an angel? How do I murder an angel? How does God define the death of an angel? Is there such a thing as the death of an angel? I didn't put it in my notes, but at some point you have to figure out where the lake of fire is. When was it created? Remember that question from a few weeks ago? When is the lake of fire created for Satan and his angels? I made the case in a surreptitious way that it was at the trial of Satan, Genesis 3.15. And they would see it. They would know that it's there, the angels would, the fallen angels, and they're not in it. That would have an impact on them. Why weren't they put in the lake of fire immediately? They weren't. No one's in the lake of fire. I have a lake of fire out there, and no one's in it. No one goes in it until the end of the tribulation. (laughs) The self-discipline to do that is amazing. Those of you on the Internet audience, I have somebody in the audience going like, oh. Fantastic. I cannot do it better than this. Satan, full of wisdom, perfect in beauty, rises up in pride and embarks on a murderous frenzy. He's the father of murder. He's the father of lies. He formulates a stratagem. He activates it. And the heaven, the heavens, the angelic realm, the heavenly estate is in chaos. To repeat, omniscient God does not preemptively Excuse me, intervene. That's from last week. I ask you, why didn't God preempt this? He did not. Why not? Satan knew he would not. Satan had figured out ahead of time that God would not preemptively strike. How did Satan know that God would, would stand by or stand down? Was God standing by standing down? The answer is no. What is God doing? Oh my, this is going to get really tough now. Go. Huh? Two trees, yes. Dana from the left says two trees, and he's absolutely correct. God does not intervene. It's the same as the two trees. Why not? Is he doing something while Satan is doing this? Yes, God is doing something. What's he doing? Don't think it's nothing. It isn't nothing. God is waiting. Why does he wait? What is proved by his waiting? And Satan knew that he would wait. How do I know that Satan knew that that the all-knowing God would not intervene? And keep in mind that God knows our thoughts before we compose our thoughts. He's omniscient. You're going to play three-dimensional chess just to be silly. This is silly, a terrible analogy. You're going to play three-dimensional chess with an omniscient God. And he's going to know your thoughts before you think them. Are you, who's betting money on you? 
Noah. Are you nuts? But Satan has a plan. Satan is amazing. And he walked back and forth. And he's in that, he's on the mountain. For how long did you decide? And he's there, and he's learning about God, and he knows that God is, um, is pure, holy, good, omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. God knows our thoughts before we, comp- we even think them. It's an advantage of his being that he is outside of time, and he's the one who sustains all things. You cannot think things unless he sustains your thinking system. Again, Satan knows this about God, and I know that Satan knows this, and that may seem like bragging, but it's just elementary reasoning. Where was I? Oh, yeah. At another coordinate on our yet-to-be-established time graph, the unfallen sons of God witnessed the trial of Satan. So you've got to put the trial of Satan and the trial of Adam and Eve, because they happen together. They're tried together. Genesis 3 is a legal procedure, and it is a God is there, Christ is there as judge, that is Christ as the judge of all things, John 5. And the sons of God, the unfallen sons of God, they witness the trial of Satan. He's their leader. For sure they're there. Where they, along with the... I'm sorry, I said unfallen, and I meant fallen, because I ran out of medicine. I failed to be consistent in my advertising. Let me repeat. The fallen sons of God witnessed the trial of Satan, and the unfallen sons of God witnessed the trial of Satan. The fallen would have the sense that they're being tried along with Satan. And there they learn incredible truths. God exposes him his thinking, if you will, what he's doing. While Satan has been doing all of this, God has been doing something as well. And he exposes it at Genesis 3. Uh, this is Felicia's question. Why doesn't he tell them? Well, he does. He waits, and now he tells them. And they learn incredible truths here during the trial of Satan. Number one of those truths is that the anointed, this is the sentencing phase. Satan has been determined to be guilty, and now he's being sentenced and they learned that the anointed cherub, the highest ranking being in all of creation, the, the wisest, the most intelligent, the most powerful, they learned that he would produce a seed. Think about that. He would produce a seed. The anointed cherub would be able to have a son. There would be a son of the serpent, and that the woman that he tried to kill by having her kill herself, we'll get to that in a minute, or maybe in ten minutes, he knew that the woman would also have a seed, and all the angels learned this at the same time. The son of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The son of Satan would battle the son of God. The son of God is God. Did they know that? But the son of Satan would would wound the son of God, and the son of God, or the seed of the woman, would kill 
the seed of the serpent. That's what it says. The seed of the serpent is going to be killed by who? Well, we know the seed of the serpent is going to be killed by God himself in the flesh. Did they know that? Well, that's a new word. First, they learned that Satan is going to be able to produce a son. They know that the woman is going to produce a son. They could have figured that out by just watching the animals. I believe they did. But there would be this conflict. At some point in the future, the son of Satan would wound the son of God and the and God himself, as the Son of God, would kill the seed of the serpent, Genesis 3.15. I asked you last week to measure the impact on the angelic realm. What was the effect? I submit that it's stunning. I think they were stunned by this. Satan's going to have a son. Why? Why would Satan have a son? Why would Satan want to have a son? Why would Satan comply with this? Why is, it in, why is it in Satan's interest to have a son? Satan is going to comply with this. Satan has complied with this. But why did he do it? I think it's a stunning development for both the fallen angels and the unfallen angels. The unfallen angels, uh, they really recognize what this is in the sense, and I'll get to that in a second. Couple this with the multiplying of Genesis 6. This is an extraordinary piece of information for the fallen angels. And I believe it was completely unconsidered. I don't believe a single angel had any idea that omniscient God would do this. As an aside, when was Genesis 3.15 established? When was the principle that the son of the serpent would be killed by the, uh, by God the Son, if you will, the seed of the woman. That was Revelation 13.8, that the Lamb of God would be slain before the foundations of the world. Jesus Christ, who is the Passover Lamb, who is the seed of the woman, who is, in fact, God himself in the flesh, uh, established this plan before time. But it was unrevealed. Why was it unrevealed? It's good that it was unrevealed. Why is it good that it was unrevealed? You see, Satan had constructed a lie, a lie that he knew would be unopposed for a while. How did he know that? Because he knows that God would do that. God is omnibenevolent. It's good to do that. So he knew that God would unoppose it, or seemingly unoppose it, but God was opposing it. He was not revealing what he was doing. And it's a lie that would be believed by one-third of the angels. That's the abundance of traffic. Did God know that one-third of the angels could be corrupted by this lie? Yes, he knew the lie before Satan was formed. Why did Satan have the capacity to do this? It's good that he has the capacity to do this. Why is that good? Existence, all of those things in philosophical sides of logic that we've discussed in the past. But it's a lie that believed by one-third of the angels. What's the lie about? It's about the very character of God. And Satan knew that God would not seemingly defend himself. You see that at the trial of Christ, don't you? Christ is accused, isn't he? That's God himself. Does God defend himself in front of Pilate, in front of the Pharisees? In front of the soldiers, in front of anybody. He does not. God is silent. 
Why is God silent when he is being attacked? First off, how do you attack omnipotence? I mean, I can't even come up with a ratio of, that bears any semblance to it. Maybe I got a tiny little kid kicking at an elephant. But that's not fair. That's not even close. I use the analogy I got a, a tiny little kid in a rowboat shooting a BB gun at an aircraft carrier, but that's not even right. There's nothing I can come up with that will, uh, that will correspond to attacking omnipotence. Satan knew that God would not defend himself. Christ would be silent in the face of accusations. That is how God is. It is in the nature of God to be this way. So why is God that way? That ultimately is the question. So Satan, watching the time here, had unfettered access in the sense that he was seemingly unobstructed. And, but, but this has now changed Genesis 3.15. The entirety of the angelic host has witnessed that the omniscient God makes a proclamation about this seed. Satan would have a seed and the woman would have a seed. And now resistance to sin is announced. The resistance to Satan's plan is given here. God was moving. What are the implications that the omniscient God is revealing himself? What are the implications that God is on the move, intervening, to use humanistic language again. For a period of time, Satan's lie seemed to reign. And I've called this a season in previous lectures. Always asking, why does God allow evil to have a season, to have time? Why? Consider how much time has passed between Satan's initial attack in the heavenly estate and then this declaration that omniscient God makes at Genesis 3.15. During that, that period of time, however you determine it, you want it to be, because you get to decide these things here, I do not affect your free will. How often do you suppose the question was asked? Why doesn't God stop Satan? Is he wiping out a third of the angels? How many of the angels went, why didn't he stop that? I submit uh, that it was universal, actually. I think it was asked by both sides. I think the fallen angels are going, how come God isn't stopping it? I think the unfallen angels are going, how come God isn't stopping it? Each hide had a contraposition, if you will, a contrapositive answer with respect to the other. Or if you prefer, the answer that, that from the unfallen angels was one of belief. And from the fallen angels, it was rooted in unbelief. Let me rephrase that. Fallen angels are saying, why isn't God stopping this? But they believe that God would and that God is good. The un- I'm sorry, well, I said that wrong, didn't I? Golly. The fallen angels had an unbelief-rooted question. When they're saying, why isn't he stopping this? They're thinking to themselves, he can't or he won't. Either one is not true. The, the unfallen angels said, he isn't. Why? One is a belief-based question. The other is an unbelief question. I'll have to watch that on TubeU or MeTube or FaceBookTube, whatever it is, and see how badly I butchered that. But I hope you understand it. I'll have to do it next week. Now, to repeat my hypothesis, I think the evidence of Scripture is such that Satan knew his lie was a lie. 
He was not under any delusion that omniscience could be outmaneuvered. Duh. He is fully cognizant that omniscience cannot be caught unaware. Duh. God cannot be betrayed. Judas did not betray God. It can't. It's not possible. However, Satan's calculus included the understanding that God's characteristics would provide a span or a duration of time. And perhaps he could not predetermine the exact length of his campaign, how much time he would be given, but I believe that Satan anticipated that there would be this period of time that would be sufficient for his lie to take root, to be effective. That's what I think he's doing. Can't beat him. He's omnipotent. But I can do something because I can count on his goodness to have time. Why does God give evil time? It's a one-word answer. Mercy. Repentance. Salvation. Jesus Christ is always saving. Why does he give you time? Why does he give anyone time? Because he's always saving. That's what God's doing in his salvation phase. God the creator, the sustainer of all things, also the restrainer, right? He restrains. God provides a restraining force, a limiting force. But within those parametric boundaries... By knowing the variables, so to speak, Satan could create the illusion that God was unable or unwilling to counterattack or counteract would be better. I hope that makes some sense. But now in Genesis 3.15, omniscience is revealed. And everyone noticed and everyone heard. Satan would have a seed, the woman would have a seed, and killing would occur. How much killing had occurred so far? How are you defining killing really quick? And how much of the killing that you're defining has occurred? Now it's been announced that killing is going to happen. And who's going to kill who? God is going to kill the seed of Satan. Now did they know it was God? Probably not. Matthew 4, they might have, that's where Satan probably figured it out. But the first question would be among the angelic hosts watching this, what's killing? Right? What's killing mean here? What is death? Death was introduced in Genesis 2.17. All the parties, Adam, Eve, Satan, the angels, knew about death. All had some understanding that death was a separating of the breath of God from the physical body with respect to Adam and Eve, but it also had something to do with separation from God spiritually. The angels would know that. Death could be or would be a process on the physical earth. But this Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of killing. Satan would have a seed, and his seed would be killed. In addition, killing, Genesis 3.21, is put on display for the first time in this environment. Innocent animals are killed. Who killed them? God. Now we learn that God is willing to kill. That's news, boys and girls. People think it is bad for God to kill evil. I don't have that view. He will end sin. He will do what is necessary. But in this case, Genesis 3.21, innocent animals are killed to provide a blood covering a garment of blood for both Adam and Eve. 
and every eye saw it. Now, as you know, I'm on the side that, uh, that have concluded that these innocent animals were sheep, that they're lambs, and the Lamb of God. That's the Lamb of God view. There are differing views, and I know them. And um, I, again, you formulate your own. I'll make the case for the lambs. The point, though, is this is the first killing. Genesis 3.15 is the first mention of killing. Genesis 3.21 is the first actual killing, the first shedding of blood, if you will. What did Satan think of that? What did the fallen angels think? What did the unfallen angels think? What did Adam think? What did Eve think? Had Adam thought this through? Did he know this was going to happen? Had Satan anticipated this would happen? Had Satan anticipated God's plan? The plan of God that is before the creation of time. Did Satan figure this plan out? I don't think he did. Oops. God will kill. Rut row. Obviously, the salvation plan of God is before the creation of time, and all of the thoughts of God are before the creation of time, but I, I digress. That's, we don't want to get into time dilation. That'll be uh, Mr. Humphrey and Moshe Carmeli and all of that, Einstein's theory of relativity. Two innocents are killed. What was the means of this? How was this done? The lambs were slain by God. Only God can slay the Lamb of God because the Lamb of God is God, right? There you have your understanding of who killed Christ. Christ killed Christ. No one else can kill omnipotence. Anyway, that's the typology here. The Lamb of God gives up himself to save the dying. These lambs came forward to God to die for Adam and Eve. And he killed them, God did. To save Adam and Eve. It's a typological portrait of the blood of Christ covering the lost. In very short order, the shedding of blood on the earth becomes frenetic. Killing is constant. Remember, 1,650 years approximately. Killing is constant. Mankind is continually evil. The earth is soaked in blood and God is grieved by that. Because of the killing, the earth is covered in water. He floods the earth. He intervenes, if you will. God kills. That's news. That raises the obvious. Here we go. We're going to make it right on time. God can kill. Man can kill. Do you agree? Don't raise your hands. Animals can kill. Do you agree? Never raise your hand. Can Satan kill a physical being? Can angels kill? What's your definition of kill? Does kill mean kill? Can Nephilim kill? What's a Nephilim? Next week, we continue doing this until you're exhausted. That's the plan. Don't invite anybody, whatever you do. Do you want them to rise so they can be dismissed? Because they cannot be dismissed unless they are risen. That's the rule. 